Have you ever been to a spin class? You go to the gym and you jump on an exercise bike. Then you watch a video that creates the illusion that you're rolling along a rocky coastline or maybe through a New England countryside. When you go uphill, you shift into the higher gear that creates some resistance. It's called pushing. When you go downhill, you shift into the low gear to reduce resistance. It's called spinning. Pushing works the legs. Spinning keeps up the cardio. It's a good workout. But here's what you learn from riding a bike. It's all about shifting gears. And so is the Christian life. Under the law, you perform in high gear. There's pressure. You're pushing. You're working to obey the rules and make yourself righteous. But a Christian shifts into the grace gear. The Christian life is spinning. The pressure to push is off. Jesus pushed up a hill called Calvary. On the cross, he paid the price and he did the work. Now we leave Calvary downhill. Calvary provides its own momentum. We trust Jesus. Now it's all about cardio, keeping our hearts toward him. Both law and grace take effort, but of a different sort. Law is a grind. Grace is a breeze. And the key to our success is shifting gears. From law to grace, from works to faith, and from the flesh to the spirit. And this is what Paul discusses in Galatians chapters 3 and 4. We begin on an ominous note, verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul says, O foolish Galatians. The Greek word translated foolish means empty-headed. Literally, you airheads, you space cadets. Here's a few other translations of verse 1. The New English Bible. You stupid Galatians. The Amplified Version puts it. Oh, you poor and silly and thoughtless and unreflecting and senseless Galatians. The Amplified always lives up to his name, doesn't it? My favorite rendering is the Phillips translation. You dear idiots. (laughs) This was not naivety. This was stupidity. Paul continues. He says, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Notice this wasn't a situation where the Galatians had been improperly taught. The the sufficiency of the cross had been clearly portrayed. Faith in Jesus was all that they needed to be right with God. So why the confusion? Well, Paul asks, who has bewitched you? It's as if the legalists had come in and cast some kind of spell. Realize legalism is seductive. It strikes a chord in our fallen thinking. You know, everything around us says that it's our performance that matters. We hear it from our parents, then our teachers, then our coaches, then our bosses. In fact, just do it is the Nike slogan. This is certainly the way of the world today. The whole notion that we can do something to earn God's favor plays into our pride. It can bewitch us. Christianity's message, on the other hand, liberates. It isn't just do it. 
It's the work is done and you can't add to it. The real gospel humbles us and it requires repentance. You can't buy or barter for a free gift. You can only believe. In verse 2 he asks, he says, the, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The Holy Spirit's given to believers, not achievers. By faith we receive from God. He says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You see, the Galatians had gotten to, off to a good start. By grace, through faith, the Spirit of God was living His life through them. Joy and victory flowed, not because of their elbow grease, but something supernatural was happening in them. And yet they failed to shift gears. For rather than spinning in faith, they geared back down under the law and started pushing again. You know, some people want to be a muscle rather than a vessel. See, a muscle flexes and forces. It's my strength on display. Whereas a vessel occupied by the Holy Spirit is all about God's power. It's the flesh versus the Spirit. Realize, when the Bible talks about the flesh, it means me. The flesh is me. Not just the evil in me, but my good, my righteousness, my energy, my ingenuity, all about me. After we're saved, we say goodbye to my, and we rely on the Holy Spirit to grow us and to make us fruitful. Under the law, we conform. We fit the mold and we follow the formulas, but under grace, the Holy Spirit transforms. The Spirit of God changes us from the inside out. See, from the law to Calvary, it's an uphill ride. It's a lot of pushing. But post-Calvary, it's now downhill. The power of what Jesus achieved creates some steam. It's no longer grinding. It's now coasting. The Spirit empowers me. But to take advantage of the change in terrain, we've got to shift gears. Again, in business and in sports and in education, the emphasis is all on our performance. Grit and grades and very little grace. But that is not the way we are to function as Christians. It's now all about faith and grace and God's Spirit. Paul's argument is if you begin in the Spirit, don't try to progress in the flesh. Keep it in the grace gear. Well, Paul asks another question. He says, have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? When they received God's grace, they came under attack from legalistic Jews. They had paid a price to embrace grace. Now if they capitulate to the pressure and revert backwards, their initial sacrifices will be wasted. He asks again in verse 5, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You remember when Paul healed the lame man there in Lystra, one of the towns of the Galatians. He didn't chalk it up to his outstanding prayer life or his impeccable purity. Not at all. He credited the miracle with nothing but grace. Miracles and healing from God aren't doled out by the basis of merit. They don't go to the goodest. When God works a miracle, it's all because of His grace. If people play a part, it's due to their faith. I think Mark Twain said it best. 
Heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. Got a joke for you. Did you hear about the patriarch Abraham, one of the fathers of our faith? He wanted to upgrade his computer. His son Isaac told him, he said, Pops, I hate to burst your bubble, but you can't run a new operating system on your old hard drive. You don't have enough memory. But Abraham, that great man of faith, was unfazed. He replied calmly, don't worry, God will provide the ram. (laughs) You know, when I recall the story of Abraham, I think in a day of breakthrough technology and computer chip wizardry, what could we possibly learn from a man who lived 4,000 years ago? Well, the answer to that is plenty. For though the world has changed and knowledge has increased, God stays the same. And the terms by which man or men relate to God are the same today as they were in the days of Abraham. And Paul is about to prove it. Chapter 3, verse 6 quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness... Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Paul points out that long before God delivered the law to Moses, 17 years before Abraham was even circumcised, God declared Abraham right in his sight. And why? Here we read, because of faith. Because he believed in God's promise of salvation. This means what God did in saving and favoring the Galatians wasn't new. It has always been by faith. And this is his conclusion in verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. God saves everyone as he did Abraham by faith. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You know, the Jews treated the law of Moses like many people treat the Bible today. Sort of like a spiritual smorgasbord. They picked the laws (coughs) that were convenient for them to obey. But here Paul tells the Galatians that if you live by the law, then you have to keep the whole enchilada. And everyone fails or falters at some point. He says, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. If salvation came by the law, why did the Old Testament prescribe a different remedy? For here Paul quotes Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. In fact, this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament, and each time the emphasis is on a different word. In Romans 1, verse 17, the focus is on the just. We're made just or righteous before God by faith. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, the stress is on faith. We've got to continue in our faith. But here in Galatians 3, verse 11, the thrust is on the word live. For it's not just that we're saved by faith, but we're to live by faith. We stop trying to earn God's favor and we shift into the grace gear.
The just shall live by faith. Verse 12, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. In other words, it's either law or faith. You've got to decide. It's either your toil or your trust. On a bicycle, you can't push and spin simultaneously, can you? It's one gear at a time. And the same is true in relating to God. You either trust in your work for Him or you trust in His work for you. Where's your heart this morning? Verse 13 sums up Paul's case for grace. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that's written in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. According to the passage, the worst disgrace was to die on a tree. On a dead tree at Calvary, a cross. Jesus died. He atoned for the disgrace of our sin in order to bring us God's wonderful grace. The cross ensured that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessings of Abraham, that is, membership in God's family, is conveyed not by law, but by faith. Even the blessings of the Holy Spirit are received by faith. And the rest of chapter 3 is a commentary on God's covenant with Abraham. Now, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, cut a deal. You ever heard that phrase? But I bet you didn't know its origin. In ancient times, when covenants or agreements were sealed, animals were sacrificed. And they were cut in cross sections from their head to their toes. The pieces were then aligned in a corridor. Both parties of the contract would then walk together between the animal halves, committing to their side of the deal. After God promised to bless Abraham, he actually prepared to finalize the covenant. He waited all day for God to come and walk with him through the animal parts. Abraham made these sacrifices. He expected God to come and ratify the deal. Abraham almost dozed off, Genesis tells us, when suddenly God appeared to him as a burning torch and as a smoking oven. And God walked through the carcasses by himself. See, it wasn't a tag team effort. It ended up not being a joint venture. This wasn't God's part and Abraham's part. God walked down the corridor all by himself. In other words, the work was God's and his alone. All Abraham did was wake up, look on, and believe. And 4,000 years later, this is still the way that God relates to people today. God has accomplished all the work for us. Our part is to simply look on and believe. It's simple faith. Paul begins to draw lessons from this Abrahamic covenant in verse 15. He says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. In other words, he's saying if people take their promises seriously, how much more will God be faithful to his covenant? Here's another point. He says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. 
He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Paul sees huge theological significance here in a single letter, an S. God's covenant with Abraham's family was not to seeds, plural, but to seed, singular. In other words, the ultimate heir of the covenant wasn't the nation that would come from Abraham's loins, his seeds, but a single seed, a single descendant, that is Jesus. See, the Jews thought they were God's salvation to the world. It wasn't the Jews, it was a Jew who would be the Savior. Realize the world's philosophy is pluralism, but God is always into singularism. Our hope of salvation is singular. It's found in one person. The only way to God is through Jesus. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. This faith-grace covenant that God made with Abraham was firmly entrenched long before the law of Moses came along. The Mosaic Law was never intended to take the place of grace, not even for a brief season. He says, For if the inheritance of the law, it is no longer of promise. For if it is the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Again, law and grace, works and faith are mutually exclusive. You can't ride in the same gear at the same time. And it makes you wonder, why in the world did God give the law in the first place? Paul anticipates that question in verse 19. He says, what purpose then does the law serve? And here's his answer. It was added because of transgressions. The law was given to expose our sin, to prove that we had transgressed. It was never intended to expunge our sin or cleanse our sin. In fact, the law was needed only till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. The Jewish law exposed our sin and our need for a Savior, but once Jesus took over, it was no longer necessary. Recently, I ran across some laws that are still on the legal dockets, though their purpose is now obsolete. For example, (coughs) in San Jose, California, did you know that sleeping in your neighbor's outhouse without permission is a violation of the law? That's right. Eating peanuts in church is illegal in Massachusetts. In Atlanta, Georgia, right here in Atlanta, Georgia, smelly people aren't allowed on streetcars. Next time you're on a streetcar and you smell a smelly person, report him. It's against the law. In North Carolina, singing out of tune is prohibited. I better watch it if I ever go to North Carolina. But here's my point. It's possible to have laws on the dockets that are interesting but are practically obsolete. And this is what Paul says about the law of Moses. After the works of Jesus, the law became unnecessary. The commandments are still on the books, you could say. But when you embrace the Savior, they're no longer required. Verse 19 makes another point about the Jewish law. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. The law was secondhand. It was conveyed secondhand. It came from God to Moses by angelic intermediaries. In contrast, verse 20 tells us, 
Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. The law leaned on mediators, but recall the covenant that God made with Abraham. God walked through the animal parts all by himself. He did it himself. He didn't need anyone else. There were no go-betweens. God's promise, grace and faith is firsthand. It puts us in touch with God personally. And thus it's better than the law. Verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. The law does serve several purposes, but making us right with God is not its objective. He says, for if there had been a law which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Hey, if the law could save us, it would have spared Jesus the miseries of the cross. He says, but the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law confirmed our inability to save ourselves. It proved that we all have a need for a Savior. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. The law did help us. It it helped keep our nose clean for a time. It taught us right from wrong. It kept us out of trouble until the time came for Jesus to save us and give us His new life. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says that the law of Moses was like a nanny. It sort of helped raise God's kids. But when the child comes of age, the nanny is no longer needed. And this is the case with a Christian. A spiritually mature believer no longer needs to be told by someone else what's right and wrong. It's his utmost desire. He knows intuitively. God's Spirit lives within him to convict him and guide him. Now that we know Jesus, our heart has changed. I no longer have to obey God. I now want to obey Him. I get to obey Him. It's been said when we become Christians, our want-tos change. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For a Christian, the Savior's nature beats in our breast as loudly as our own heart. We're miracles of grace. How can we add anything to what Jesus has already done? We need to rely on His work firsthand. Which leads us to a truth. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Since salvation is no longer based on our achievements, then the categories that used to define us are now gone. We are all one in Christ Jesus. See, all that distinguishes us now is whether we're in Christ or we're apart from Christ. And I hope you're in Christ this morning. Verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Membership in Abraham's family was no longer requiring a Jewish pedigree. We can leapfrog that requirement by embracing Abraham's heir, Jesus Christ. As so many things in this life, it's not what you do, but it's who you know that counts. 
I'm accepted by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, the first seven verses of chapter 4 continue this analogy of the law as a nanny or as a tutor. In the Roman world, before a son came of age, he was under the care of a nanny, sort of like a male Mary Poppins, okay? The son was heir to the family fortune, but in his younger years, he was treated like a hard hand. Until he developed some maturity, he couldn't be trusted. You could say he had to learn the ropes before he got the reins. And this is the background leading into Galatians chapter 4. He says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but he is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Now, a wise dad expected his son to work in the family business before he took it over. That makes sense. A future employer should first be an employee. You know, employees are treated differently than employers. Employees are graded on results. They're groomed by various rituals. They're guided by regulations, and they're guarded from their own recklessness. This is so, such vital training. For after the son becomes an owner, there's nobody to grade and groom and guide and guard him. He functions now on his own instincts. And this applies to us and life under the law. You see, the law was our tutor until Christ came. Now the law is written on our hearts. We walk by God's Spirit. Paul says in verse 3, Even so we, when we were children... We're in bondage under the elements of the world. Paul's saying that legalism is a nanny religion. It's the ABCs of morality and ethics. The word elements here means basics. See, the law was a basic version of right and wrong. But here's Paul's point. Legalism is for babies. Here, here's what I mean. Boundaries and rules and doing it because you have to do it. That's easier than walking by faith. Walking by faith requires a relationship with God. Religious formulas are just formula compared to a relationship with God. See, the false teachers in Galatia, they spoke of the law as the path to true enlightenment. But Paul says religion is just kid stuff. It's infantile. It's look at me religion. No, we grow by grace and through faith. If you want to mature, advance to a relationship with God, not just following rules and regulations. Listen to the voice of God's Spirit. Walk by faith, not by works. For a time, God kept mankind under the law. Verse 4 tells us. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Notice in the fullness of time, when history reached a crescendo, at a pre-planned moment in time, God sent forth His Son. Roman peace and Jewish prophecy and God's sovereignty all combined to make it the right time. And Jesus was born under the law. He lived up to its demands. 
He became our sinless sacrifice in order to redeem us to God. He even adopted us as His sons. You know, I think it's wonderful that every adopted child has one great blessing. I don't know if you've been adopted. That's probably, there's probably several people in the room that were adopted. But I think it's wonderful that every adopted child has one great blessing. Come what may, they always know they were wanted. If you were adopted, you were wanted. Adoption is no accident. And this is beautiful to think about, that Jesus has adopted us. It means that He loves us. It means that He wants us. He says, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. You know, God's adoptions are legal transactions. He redeems us by satisfying our debts. He takes legal custody of us. But his adoptions are not just on paper. There's more to a divine adoption. He puts his spirit in us. So that the instinctive cry of our hearts is Abba or Daddy. In other words, there becomes a relational intimacy between God and us. That's a full adoption. Where we have the Father's spirit in our hearts. And then verse 7. Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. There's a shingle over the doorway in heaven that reads, God and sons. We're all heirs of His amazing blessings. And then verse 8, But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God's. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? And this was the Galatians' betrayal. This church was made up of previous pagans and former Jews. Both religions chained their adherence to impossible codes and laborious ceremonies. The grace of God was to them a breath of fresh air. It was a cup of ice water on a hot summer's day. Why did they return to beggarly religion? They'd been to the mountaintop of grace. They were now God's kids. Why are they stooping to worthless religion? He says in verse 10, You observe days and months and seasons and years. Why think a holy God would be satisfied by you keeping festivals rather than having faith? Paul writes, I am afraid of you, lest I have labored for you in vain. What an ominous statement. If you continue down this path, all that you've received so far will be negated. Understand, legalism isn't benign. You know, most pastors are quick to rebuke someone who carries his freedoms too far, but they'll tolerate the legalist. At least he's on our side. That's a fatal miscalculation. I've heard it put like this. The more religious a man becomes, the further from God he gets. In other words, rather than trusting in God, work in his heart, he's trying to work it out himself. He's getting further from God. Paul worries that the legalism of the Galatians will unravel everything that grace has weaved together for them. His work in them will be in vain. And then verse 12, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. 
Paul laid aside the Jewish legalism with which he was familiar, and he lived by faith like a Gentile believer. Paul worshipped on Sundays. He mowed his grass on the Sabbath. He ate bacon at the men's prayer meeting. And he's now encouraging the Galatians to mimic his example, to come out from under the law and to live by faith. In verse 13, Paul begins a new thought. He says, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. Now, when Paul and Barnabas landed on the Turkish coast, they didn't stay long. They left the tropical area for the drier mountains of Galatia. And what motivated them to move? He says it was a physical infirmity. And he recalls how the Galatians received him. He says, my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. The Galatians held Paul in high esteem. They treated him as a messenger of God. In fact, the illness that he suffered didn't lessen their respect at all. He says, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Here's how much the Galatians loved Paul in the beginning. They would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to him if it were possible. And here's a clue as to the nature of Paul's illness that he refers to. It was probably some sort of infectious eye disease. Some people believe Paul had contracted trachoma. It was the thorn in the flesh that he spoke of in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The warm, humid, tropical climate had caused a flare-up of his condition and it caused him to move to cooler, drier highlands, the highlands of Galatia. Paul remembers the Galatians' sacrificial loyalty. But what had happened to their love? See, someone had turned them against him. And he says in verse 16, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. Paul's referring to these legalistic teachers, these Judaizers, these false teachers. Paul, Paul spoke the truth. But there are some pastors that pamper more than pastor. They tell people what they want to hear. He says, but it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. The Galatians had stood up for God's grace when Paul was around, but once he had left town, they dropped their guard, and he now rebukes them. They need to be consistent. He says in verse 9, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Paul wanted to see the Galatians mature to exhibit the character of Christ. He says that his soul labored with birth pangs like an expectant mom. Paul contracted with concern to see the Galatians grow in their relationship with Christ. He said, well, I, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. How disappointing that would have been if, you if you'd been a Galatian and you had read it. That Paul has doubts about us. He worried that the Galatians had been deceived by legalism. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? 
And Paul is about to use an Old Testament story to teach a New Testament lesson. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, that is Hagar, remember her, and the other by a free woman, and that would be Sarah. See, Sarah was the gal who bought the bikinis with her social security check. You you remember her? She was the old woman who was beautiful. Even though she was 90 years, she was still beautiful. So much so that the king in Egypt wanted her for himself. She was the ageless knockout, Sarah. Hagar was the maid, the hot honey that Abraham had met down in Egypt and added to his harem. And these two women, Hagar and Sarah, became embroiled in a severe case of sibling rivalry. He says, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Remember, God promised Abraham and Sarah a son. Sarah was 65 years old at the time that promise was first given. Abraham was even older. And at 65, God's promise seemed pretty far-fetched. And then, when nothing happened for 25 long years, and God still repeated the promise to Sarah, you remember the story, a 90-year-old Sarah, she did what? She laughed. She just laughed at God's promise. And it was shortly thereafter that God got the last laugh. For amazingly, at the age of 90, Sarah had a son. She named him Isaac, which means laughter. But that's just half the story. For in her darkened days, her darkest days of barrenness, Sarah grew weary of checking her temperature and counting down the days on the calendar and rushing home from parties to do the deed while she might be ovulating, and all the rest of it. You see, the ancients had a shortcut around all this family planning. You could recruit a surrogate mom. You you could arrange a night. Let the husband have his jollies. And the baby that resulted would go to the wife who had tolerated it all. And that's how Hagar gave birth to her son, Ishmael. Now here's how Paul tells the story. Sarah had a son through promise. Isaac was a miracle baby. He was God's work from start to finish. The result of a promise, just like our salvation. Whereas Ishmael was born according to the flesh. And remember, flesh is, it's me. Flesh is me. It's my efforts. It's my ingenuity. It's my ability. Just like our efforts under the Jewish law. So verse 24, he says, which things are symbolic. And here you know the plot's about to thicken. Because the tale of these two sons has spiritual implications. It's analogous. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Now, let me explain it. 
Hagar represents the legal code that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, the law, which was later associated with another mountain, Mount Moriah, or the Temple Mount, there in the heart of Jerusalem. That was the seat of Judaism, or the Jewish law. The system of relating to God that Paul opposed in Galatia, righteousness that depends on your obedience to the law and works and flesh, is epitomized in Hagar and Ishmael. (coughs) Yet to the contrary, Paul says, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. The Jerusalem above is another mountain. It's the mountain of heaven. And this is where the power originated that impregnated Sarah from heaven. It's also where the power originates to save you and me. It's from heaven that we're saved. Heaven bestows favor freely by grace, through faith, by the power of God's Spirit. Which is exactly how we relate to God under the new covenant. So, Hagar and earthly Jerusalem represent the law. Whereas Sarah and the Jerusalem above, or heaven, represents grace. Verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren! You who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. This is from Isaiah 54 verse 1. It speaks of the two covenants as these two women. The covenant that starts out barren will produce many more children than the covenant that claims to be fertile. Which means that in the end, Jerusalem above... The new covenant, symbolized by Sarah, produces many more offspring for God than the Jerusalem below, which is the Jewish law. The point is, grace is more fruitful than law. If you really want to please God, if you really want to know God, trust in His grace, not in your own efforts. That's what Paul's telling us. And then in verse 28, Paul explains it. Now we, brethren, as Isaac... Our children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Abraham's foray into, into the flesh resulted in friction in his home. Hagar needled Sarah constantly. And after dig, after dig, after insult, after insult, she had all she could take. Verse 30 tells us, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Paul quotes here Genesis 21, Sarah's ultimatum. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. These two women were going to be in conflict as long as they lived. Little old honey Hagar had to go. And the same is true with these two ways of relating to God. You can't do it both ways. They're incompatible. Paul's saying it's grace or law, it's faith or works, it's the Holy Spirit or it's your flesh. And Paul concludes, so, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Be a person who lives by faith rather than trusts in me. And if you're not that kind of person, then it's time for you to shift gears.